0: Welcome to The Conversation, a podcast about technology, instructional design, and learning sciences. Our main topic this week is on assessment, but we're going to start with a discussion on productive failure. And throughout this semester, we've talked in class about this notion of failure and this thing that keeps coming up about how do we handle failure within instructional design. Oftentimes, it's seen as something that is bad. We don't like failing, but an argument can also be made about failure being a good thing because it helps us learn more. So that's kind of what productive failure is about. And I've always wanted to include this topic in this class and haven't had a chance so this is the first time that this class will be talking about productive failure. And so there just happens to be a special issue in the journal Thinking Skills and Creativity that was all about productive failure. So I provide the class with a packet that they can pick from. So that's kind of what we're going to be starting with. And then we're going to talk more about assessment. Before we start, we have two guests this week. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? So let's start with you, Janelle.
1: My name is Janelle, uh, and uh, this is my first year as a grad student at Adelphi University as a educational technology major. Uh, I am a preschool teacher. It's my first year teaching and uh, I had graduated about a year and a half ago
2: and now I'm here.
0: And Shannon, you've joined us before. Um, Is there anything you wanna add?
2: Just that I am also my first uh, semester in this grad program. Um, I'm a special education teacher for students with moderate to severely special needs. Um, they range from 16 to 19. And I'm excited to be here.
0: Well, let's start with productive failure. Janelle, uh, you said you read the Anderson article from the productive failure, right? What did you think about the concept?
1: I thought the concept was interesting. You know, it was a lot different than other approaches, like the usual direct instruction approach. Uh, I found that I wasn't too sure about, you know, not giving homework and having the lecture and, well, not lecture, but the lesson spread out. I wasn't too sure about that. But then Mm -hmm. when the post-test came along, they did better than the direct instruction group. So I was on the fence and my thoughts, you know, were back and forth about it
2: yeah i think i'm in pretty much the same boat um i think that it is a good approach um, and provides a lot of creativity um doing the productive failure uh, method i just don't know if i could see it being successful with like every type of class for example like with my students i i can't imagine this being successful for me um but i think because my students are so developmentally uh, delayed and cognitively impaired, but I feel like in older grades and high school classes, I could see this being a beneficial um, approach for the students and for the teachers to kind of provide some freedom for the students.
0: What did you learn about productive failure from the readings? You had different readings, so you said you read the Anderson article from the productive failure. Um, and you don't have to summarize the whole thing, but like just big takeaways, I guess.
1: Uh, well, for me, since the productive failure in uh, this reading went with uh, it was based on video games, it was actually pretty interesting because it promoted learning a different way. So the game is set up so that it's testing whether or not you're failing, and then it progressively gets a little easier and set up so that you can later on progressively get successful after failing and the article actually said pleasantly frustrating so it pleasantly made them frustrating by wanting them to keep
2: going
0: do either of you play games outside of school i mean
2: not really for me no no, not really yeah, not normally <laughs> <Okay>. my <I> thing. <laughs> but I chose
1: it because I thought that it was interesting by just reading the abstract.
0: There's a school of thought with regards to game based learning that looks at how games and usually they mean video games, computer games, something like that, commercial video games, how they're designed for learning. If you think about it, all of these games require that you learn how to play, right? And through the learning how to play you often often involves failing multiple times, why is it that people are attracted to gaming, even though it's built around this notion of failure, why do people keep going back to games? In fact, a complaint, I know they cite G, and one of the two things G's, G talks about is that a complaint that gamers will have is that games are too easy. Like, that's like if a game is too easy, that's considered a bad game. And if you think about this in a school context, you would almost never hear a student say, well, this class is too easy. <laughs> Right. Um, is it possible for instructional designers, teachers um, to design something like game using whatever model, productive failure being one of them, to motivate students to be engaged with the class in a similar way, um, not being afraid of failing, wanting the challenge and so on? So that's kind of the question. I don't know if the found the problem yet. Uh, I don't think it's strictly has, having to do with instructional design either. So I think that's kind of where they're coming from. So yeah, Janelle, I mean, I think your summary was got to the main points. Like they're, it's designed around, because games are designed around failing. So I think the idea is that students are learning something as they figure out how to do. It. And so can you just briefly describe the game, like what it's supposed to teach?
1: The game, that was about, they were separated into th- three to four groups and Mm -hmm. they had to engage in uh a discussion first on how to like stop this virus and uh they had to investigate the role of failure and learning in a camp
0: i mean i don't know if that's what the students have to do but i think that's what the research is trying to do
1: yes
2: yes. the the
0: students are just playing the game yes shannon what about your article
2: um so my article was about these 8th grade students that did like a whole class uh discussion um on a, the temperature of like a glass of milk that was uh, like it was warmed quickly and then more slowly as it approached room temperature so basically it was just using the productive failure approach and talked about how they initially produced non normative ex- uh, explanations Um, But by the end of the discussion and the class, they had like changed their thoughts and their ideas into like a different explanation that was more scientific, showing like the relationship with Newton's law of heating. So basically the whole article was just on using that um, approach and how failure can really play a large role when students are being creative and uh, making sense of things.
0: What did you think about the article in general?
2: I liked it. I think it was a good example which went right toward what I was kind of confused about with the readings is that I can see how this approach can be really beneficial with science or math or things that kind of like can be, I just feel like can be discussed easier. I can't like foresee this approach being used in like a history lesson or a social studies lesson. So that's kind of one of the questions that I wrote down is that Mm -hmm. I can't imagine it. Maybe I need a better example, but I can't imagine it being as productive in those subjects.
1: I could see where she's coming from because in math, you're doing a lot of collaborating and you're working together. Meanwhile, in history, it's all about facts. And to, I'm not really a big history person. So okay. I found I find that history tends to be a lot of like lectures and it could be debate as well. So that's why it's hard for me to see, it how, see how it could be implemented in a history class as well.
0: I mean, you're right that history is often taught around facts, but that's typically not the ideal way to teach history. As far as I know, like when last week's reading, when I talked to Christine about poor ideas, I don't know if you remember the, in the Wiggins and Matigue reading, there's this figure of three concentric circles. The one that is least important are the facts. The most important, the core ideas, would be the historical thinking that goes on with the understanding that history and social studies shouldn't be taught just around facts, but should be taught around ideas, arguments, processes. And so in that sense, it's kind of like science, although it's often taught around facts because for any number of reasons, sometimes for test reasons, sometimes because it's easier to assess. That's another problem.
1: So I actually have have a comment on that. So... In the past, uh, while observing and student teaching, uh, and I know this is kind of going off track, but just as a comment, I noticed that social studies and history is not spent on as much as it should be. And that's probably the reason why I feel like I can't see the approach being used in history where math and writing and literature, literacy is being spent on more.
2: I'm not Um, sure if you
1: see that too, Shannon. But
2: Yeah, I agree. I I don't see it as much, you know, in my school, especially, but um, I think they do put a lot of energy into math and reading. But I think that's more so because that's like the core foundation. Yeah. And I think the reason that uh, this approach is difficult in history is because if it was in math, students can take all take different approaches, but get to the answer. Um, Same with science, like they can all take a different approach, but There's like an ultimate goal, whereas I feel like with history, like we were saying, like it is just facts or there is like there's only one answer to it. It's like it has to be this. So I just think that the collaborative piece in history is a little bit more difficult.
0: I remember a a game that was a modded game, which means they took a commercial game and they kind of adapted it. And there was a game called Revolution, I think it was called. It was designed on using a game called Neverwinter Night Engine which allows you to create mods. Neverwinter Night is a role-playing game, and the game Revolution was designed to teach you about the American Revolution. And I think what you are allowed to do is that you're, you get to role-play different characters and go around talking to other characters, some who want independence and others who are pro, like royalists. The idea is that the struggle for independence was not simply reading through the, the history, but also understanding the processes there are different ways you can learn history, right? I'm guessing neither of you are history poster. Definitely
2: not. <laughs> no. Just <laughs> not based on your,
0: based <laughs> on what, how you talk about it. Because if you approach history as in what happened in what day with whom, that can be really dry. And I think that's probably where history and social studies often fails to engage students. But I think once you're able to show students that like the why and how, like why did this event happen? Not that it happened, but why it happened and the way it did. What else could have happened? I think that becomes a lot more interesting and that opens up the inquiry part that might have some place for productive failure to enter. So I I think, you know, I think it's definitely not as straightforward in terms of like if you want to use productive failure. But I I do think there is a room for that. I'm actually kind of curious I know Brooke, who hopefully listens to these podcasts? We'll see. Mm-hmm. She teaches literature. I'm kind of curious about whether she would think literature because you can kind of make the same argument that literature is say. just about books. Yeah, same thing. Maybe she can see a space in there.
1: The one thing that I did find interesting about this approach, about the productive failure approach, um, was that they were given no homework, and that was actually one of my questions. And if homework was essential to learning. And since productive failure doesn't require, I mean, I think from what I read, it seemed like they didn't say that um, homework was required for this kind of approach. But uh, I don't know. I feel like with the test scores, uh, with the post-test scores, I felt like it was odd that, yes, they did good on the homework. But then when it came to the post-test, it was like they did uh the other approach, direct instruction approach, they did far more better on the post test.
0: This is the other article, right? This is the website.
2: Yeah, this
1: is the website
2: about the homework component. I think I think it depends on what the homework is. So, like, I'm just thinking back to like when I was in school and like a lot of paper homework when I was in elementary school. Like, I don't know that that was completely beneficial for me. But I think mm-hmm. if we could make homework more meaningful, more like engaging. I think that there would be a better response, and it would be more essential. I don't personally like my students don't go home with homework. Again, I know my population is different. I think that if you know you're sending students home with packets and on packets of work every night, I don't think that's beneficial. So I think it really just depends on like the type of homework they're giving, how engaging it is. Um, I don't
0: think productive failure necessarily includes or excludes homework. I think that's just something they did. I think the idea, because it's a study, they want to make sure that the reader knows whether they're getting any additional work. So they're trying to say that all the work they're doing was in class. And I think, did the other group have homework? Did I work instruction? I'm trying to think. I
1: thought it? they did have homework. Oh, they
0: homework. did. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lecture practice. Okay, so I think they were just trying to say, you know, what time. Because you also want to make sure that one group isn't spending significantly more time on the work than the other group, otherwise your study is going to be off. I think the point they were trying to make with the post test, though, is that the group that didn't do the productive failure, they did well on the simple tests, but they did poorly comparatively when they did the post test, which had simple and complex problems. And I think that's their point. They're saying that the short term versus the long term learning, right? That's kind of towards the end of their uh, end of that article where they say that they both have benefits and drawbacks. But I think if you want students to learn something, not just for the immediate thing that they're doing, like a test or something, but you want them to kind of retain it over time, then projective failure does a better job at longer term and also more complex problems. I think that's kind of their argument.
2: I have one thing to add. So this was really just a thought. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to what I'm about to say. Um but so I really think the productive failure approach is great. Um, like you were saying, I can see the long term um benefits of it more than short term. I think that productive failure kind of takes out the component of like a sit down paper test though. Um and I just know like I wrote to become a teacher, you have to take tons of certification tests. So I mm-hmm. just wonder that if you know, I don't I feel like productive failure can't be the only way of instruction because like, if we like it or not, some professions and some times of life, we're going to have to take tests. So I wonder if, you know, tests weren't around anymore, and no teachers use tests anymore, if that would really set people back for their future, because we can't really escape sometimes that we have to take tests. Um, It's just something I've seen, like a lot of my students obviously opt out of New York State uh, testing and things like that. And for them, obviously, they're not going to be taking um, tests down the line for their careers. But some students in like high schools and middle schools like that are opting out of testing. I see the benefits of that, but I also see that it could be setting them back for the future um, if they're not exposed to testing. Um, Unfortunately, we can't completely um, escape testing. Which is something I was thinking about.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with that. I feel like that's uh, setting a little bit of, um, you know, when they get into college, when they get into, you know, for us, you know, going into school for wanting to be a teacher, there are numerous tests. And not just that, if you want to become anything nowadays, there are tests that you need to be able to pass to actually, you know, get into that career. So I I think that testing is quite important to me. But in some cases, like if they are opting out with the test, I mean, I guess that's their choice and their parents' choice, I feel like.
0: I know I agree with you. I think, and that's actually a perfect segue into the chapter seven reading. Cause testing is just one kind of assessment, right? It's not recommended to use only one type of assessment. So I really like the chart on, or the figure on page 152, the continuum of assessments, because it shows you like all the different types of assessments that should be part of your collection of assessments in, within a unit or within a class and i think the analogy that they use about snapshot versus a scrapbook is important because all of these assessments on their own they're snapshots they have like one it's their snapshot in time um like a test or like a like a, like in the in this class you have the informal quiz you took last week or two weeks ago right and then you have your weekly assessments and then you have like the hands on stuff so all of these are different assessment. And if that was the only assessment that could, that only tells me one thing about you, right? Um, and so I think I would see tests being a part of that. So I would agree with you. I think, I think that students do need that exposure just so you can even things out. Cause maybe some people are also not good test takers. And, um, but that, that doesn't mean they should never take a test in their lives, right? Uh, just cause as you said, they have to take it at some point, probably. Um, I noticed that in both cases they talked about, or they shared the conversations that the people involved were having in the game. They were showing how game the gamers were talking about what they did when they failed and and what to do, um, and what it meant. And then in the the creative thinking reading, they also shared kind of the back and forth between the participants. I was wondering, like, what you thought about being able to see them unpack their failures versus when you get in a test and you see only the answer, what the process of what the conversation helped you understand.
2: Um, I think the conversation was like my favorite part because it makes what I'm reading feel real. Um, And I felt like I was able to connect with a lot of what um, students were saying. And I think that like, when you fail, you always learn something from when you fail, regardless of it's good or bad. Um, So I felt like, you know, hearing them explain, you know, why they were wrong or what they noticed, I thought was really helpful. And I think that is like a learning experience in itself. I think it's interesting also to see what one student says versus what another student says. It just shows how everybody thinks differently. And yeah, I thought that part was really helpful.
1: For me, it was quite interesting, actually, because, seeing as uh, since it was a game you're uh seeing them talk about the the game and you actually you actually saw them um collaborating with one another and actually Mm -hmm. helping one another out which i thought was uh really interesting to see and you know you i you know watched uh my brother play video games and uh but i'm not hearing what the other person is saying and seeing it written out and reading it it's interesting to actually see and yeah. when they are collaborating with one another it's um you know they're not just collaborating with one another actually uh there was uh, one participant who was saying um is is this one hard this one uh it's pretty easy for me uh yeah. so giving each other um their thoughts on mm-hmm. what they're actually playing as well i thought was pretty interesting
0: being able to hear their thinking process is very helpful in understanding what they're struggling with and kind of what they're getting out of it, which you don't always see with assessment. I think that's one thing about the productive failure part of that you are able to create these opportunities for them to talk about. Even in the other article, they talked about um, the importance of having people in groups, right, because they can talk to each other. Um, so I think that's another part to keep in mind: is that it's a it's a group collab- collaborative assignment, not a solitary one, which is oftentimes what schools tend to emphasize, um, kind of assessing individual, but not so much the process and the group aspect of it.
1: Yeah, and I like to make a comment about um, my article and how it made me think after reading it. And um, since there was a lot of collaboration with amongst the the people who were uh, playing the game, that collaboration uh, seems to go hand in hand with everything, uh, not just with your workplace, businesses, uh, Mm -hmm. but also in gaming too. And I never Mm -hmm. thought about that when it came to playing a game and being able to collaborate with one another.
0: So let's move on to the other reading
1: I think I briefly touched on grass before um, during my undergrad but I did like figure 7.5 uh, about the different types of evidence and, I, and it made me think about what do I really use in my classroom and when I student taught what did I really see and I realized that you know it was really a lot of informal checks for understanding rather than um, like quizzes and tests cuz When student teaching, I really, um, there were really only tests towards like the end of the month, towards the end of the unit. Um, But yeah, I noticed that we definitely use a lot more informal checks for understanding. And as a teacher now, yeah, it's only, um, you know, pre-K, but, uh, you know, trying to get them into kindergarten, I do use a lot of informal checks for understanding.
0: What type of assessments do you use now? Or Uh, just examples?
1: Now, so I do a lot of um, examining my students work. So I'm not sure if you guys have listened to, um, I forgot what question it was on the voice thread, but I, I am, I work in a different kind of school where it is a different kind of approach. It's called Reggio Emilia approach. Uh, So it's um, an approach where students are using more of their creativity, where they're building more of their independence. And we don't use a lot of technology, actually. Uh, And meanwhile, I'm going to school for educational technology. But we use a lot of um, repurposed materials. So with that, I am always observing as well. And then since they are such a young age, uh, making sure that their cognitive skills are
2: aligned with the stage that they're at as well. It's funny because I had recently just had a meeting um, with my principal and um, she was saying how she wants to make um, assessments really like the driving force um, in each teacher's classroom. She doesn't feel that she sees it enough. Um mm as a whole in the building and uh, she wanted to, you know, get my input on what I thought about that. Um, So now that we just did all these readings, I can't wait to bring them back to her. Um, But I think the best takeaway is the formative assessments. I think that is like the most essential component in a classroom. So I have to obviously take a lot of data on my students' IEP goals. So a lot of times, like after a lesson, um, since it's fresh in my head, I kind of like just go to the back, Um, students might be taking like a brain break, and I just like go through their goals that I have lined up in the back and will just take quick data on how they did Um, some like just teacher observations that I can see. Um, And I also at the end of every lesson, pretty much, I ask students to just tell me something that they learned um, in that half hour, whether they write it down, they tell me, they draw a picture of something just to kind of see, you know, what they're taking away from, um, what I'm giving. Um, and then I think, I don't even know if it directly really said it in this entire, um, chapter, but something that I'm just learning from this entire class is that there's such a connection between the goal and the assessment. So like, I just feel like you, We've talked a lot about setting you know, clear goals and expectations, and I think that assessment goes hand in hand with that. Um, so yeah, that's just what I had taken away and something that I think I need to do better of, to be honest with you, with um, assessments, um, really aligning it to the goal to make sure that we are getting the data um, that we really need to be measured.
0: I like the figure 7.3 on page 151. I thought the comparison between Thinking like an assessor, which is the title of the chapter versus thinking like an activity designer. I think it's very easy to think of it like an activity designer, especially if you're starting, starting off, I guess you think about like, what test should I give? What are the grades and you know, all that stuff. And if you want to think like an assessor, it would, it would help to have a shift in your thinking in terms of, um, you know, what are the goals? And it's just kind of what you were talking about, Shannon. Um, what are the goals and what are what are the things that would help you identify whether the goals were met or not?
2: I feel like it is very easy to be um, an activity designer. I think being an assessor, thinking like an assessor is definitely something that needs to be more worked on. Um, and that's where I proposed my question. Um, there's an example in the chapter about, Um, the 100th day of school, and kindergartners had to put 100 items, obviously, on a poster and bring it in. And they say how that doesn't really measure um, the goal that they really need to, you know, reach. It just shows that they can count to 100. Um, It doesn't show that they can, you know, make rows of 10. And it just made me think, is finding the right assessments more difficult when you're working with younger students or like students like I work with? Because I feel like it is. Difficult to not make it so much of like an activity when you're working with um, those kind of students. So that's just something that I was thinking about. I feel I would imagine it to be harder to create um, the best assessments for younger grades or students with disabilities and special needs. I feel like you have to have that fun activity component a lot of the times to keep them Mm -hmm. engaged. So I just wonder if that would be more challenging.
0: What do you think, Janelle? This is right up.
2: Uh, Yeah, this is right up my alley. (laughs) (laughs) So
1: I completely agree. You know, when it comes to assessments in my classroom, uh, and, you know, I student taught in higher grades, actually. You know, I student taught in second grade and fifth grade. And uh, going down to working with uh, pre K, it was, uh, I had to rethink my whole entire. not, not rethink my whole entire vision, but rethink how I would, you know, time management and classroom instruction and whatnot. But um, as far as assessments, um, I do find it a little, not difficult, um, but I have to make sure that it's an appropriate assessment where it's a little more fun actually, where they, you know, get more engaged because they have, they can't stick with a, you know, they can't sit down for such a long time. Um, Meanwhile, I mean, my kids could sit down for like a good half an hour, but um, making sure that my assessment is fun is definitely something that I need to have to do. Uh, But I did find uh, that when I did student teach that, doing assessments were easier with them, um, you know, because you're able to do like a, a self check-in or you can even do uh, check-ins uh, di- in different ways, like a self-assessment or, for partici- or participation assessment. So, yeah, I would say that it's a little harder, but then again, there's ways to make it a little more fun for the little ones.
0: What did you think about the kindergarten teacher with the 100 item example?
1: So, with that, I actually was going to write about that in my aha moment, but I didn't end up writing about that. <laughs> I I felt like the the project um, could have been different, and I didn't think that it actually uh, make... I mean, she, they made it fun, but it didn't, it was just really counting to 100, you know, and it wasn't actually, you know, going more in depth with trying to assess whether or not they knew more about 100, the the number 100, so, and I think that's actually what um, Shayan had wrote um, either uh, in her voice said,
2: or it was in her, her aha moment, actually. It's just funny because I actually did that exact one hundredth day of school project when I was in kindergarten. And that's kind of what I mean when I say I think teachers need to be exposed to learning about more meaningful assessments. I, I think that we need to be like taught more, maybe having more workshops or professional developments centered around assessment. Because I think that it's extremely important to realize that okay, as that activity is fun, it really didn't show Um, what we need to find out, what we need the students to be um, achieving.
0: You mentioned your principal, was it, who wanted to do more assessment or thought that the classes should have more assessment or something like that?
2: Yeah, I think that where she's coming from at that is that, um, like I said, a lot of our students, all of our students have um, IEPs, so they have their own goals. Um, and a lot of the times if she meets with a teacher and asks them how do you know that they've reached that goal? A lot of the teachers don't have appropriate data on it. Mm, um, okay. So she really wants to implement more, you know, meaningful assessments that can really show and measure if the student is really achieving that specific goal.
0: Do you know what advice you would give her based on the reading this week?
2: I think the biggest thing is that you need to make sure your assessment is matching the goal like i think that we need mm-hmm. to think of it as okay if we're saying the student can answer wh questions then we need to make sure that the assessment is surfaced on wh questions you know not just something not related to the you know main point of the goal so i think that would be the biggest thing i could explain. And then also the whole a component of formative assessments, because it's obviously very easy to forget as teachers um, at the end of the day, what happened. So just like a, a constant check and a constant check for understanding to see where the students are at.
1: One of my questions was, uh, do you think that graphs would be an efficient tool to measure students' understanding, proficiency, and knowledge? And, and then I went on asking other questions about like self-assessment and do you think self-assessments are beneficial for students to identify if their knowledge is uh, weak, they need help, or if they're actually, if they're actually uh, grasping what they learned?
0: So one question was, do you think that GRASP would be an effective tool? So GRASP would be the acronym for Goal, Role, Audience, Situation, Performance, and Standards. What do you think, Shannon? Shannon?
2: I do think that it would be um, an effective tool, kind of based on what I've just been saying about that line between the goal and the assessment. So um, yeah, I think that it would be an extremely effective tool to make sure that students are proficient and um, really comprehending.
0: This is Janelle's question. What do you feel about self-assessments? Like, I think self-assessments might be something that would be useful across grades even, just even if it's not a super metacognitive thing. I think having them be able to judge for themselves. I think it's really helpful. Do you use any kind of self-assessment in your classes?
1: I mean, now I um I use kind of a self-assessment where you know I you know coming in from student teaching with you know a higher grade, uh, and then going into pre-K, I try to use self-assessment similar to what I know so uh, I do use the one two three so I'm not sure if you know what that one um, I'm sure you know what that is Shannon where one you need a lot of help two you kind of get it but you need a little more help and three I completely understand it and I don't need help Um, so I kind of use that in a way in my classroom where uh, my students I only do one and two one if they need help and then two I'm okay. I don't need help. And that obviously depends on what we're doing at the time. But I feel like self-assessments are absolutely great in classrooms where there's different kinds of self, self-assessments self that are out there.
0: How do you usually present this assessment to your students? Is it a, like an exit ticket or is it just like a question that you ask them? Uh, yeah.
1: In between the lessons, I would just go ahead and give me one if you need help and two if you don't need help so Hmm. that's how i would um use it in my class
0: i've seen teachers put similar things like a some kind of polling thing on you know popsicle sticks or something that they can hold up that only you can see that sometimes i think that makes them feel a little bit less self-conscious if you think that's an issue so i was just kind of curious about how they give you that information and whether you notice that maybe they they would say they understand when they don't or anything like that.
1: There are ones who will not raise their hand at all because they're way too shy. And that's understandable at that age. So what I do is um, I do a different type of assessment where we do uh, little meetings, actually, where I um, mm. sit down uh, with each of my students to see where they're at. You know, trying to get them ready for kindergarten, it's, you know, important that they're grasping what we're, what I'm teaching them in class. So uh, sitting down with them to make sure that they are giving me their right understanding. And for the ones who aren't giving me their, you know, their understanding, when they're not giving me a one or a two, you know, I sit mm-hmm. them down.
0: Shannon, what about you? Do you use self-assessments?
2: Um, so I definitely know what Janelle was talking about with the one, two, three. Um, so when I was student teaching, I did use that. And that's not something I use so much in my classroom now. It's a little too, too difficult for my students to understand how to do that. But something I, not pertaining to academics, but, um, in terms of behavior, my students do a lot of self-assessment. So a lot of my students have, um, like contracts, behavior contracts. And mm-hmm. like at the end of a half an hour, I'll tell them to review their contract. And in that time they look and they say, okay, from eight thirty to nine, uh, did I have a safe body? Yes. Did I have a quiet mouth? Yes. With my feet on the floor. And they kind of um, assess how their behavior was for that half an hour. Um, mm-hmm. And then they have, you know, a sheet where they document it. Um, so I do use self-assessment in that way. And I think it's great because it, you know, it's promoting, you know, a high level skill that the students are, you know, having to be in charge of their behavior and to, you know, assess themselves and if they're not happy with something like make the appropriate changes. Um, So I think a self-assessment is a great tool. And like you said, I think I could see it being used in any type of classroom. Um, And I think it's a nice skill um, that is a lifelong skill, obviously um, to assess ourselves, even if it's not, you know, so formal, I think we all assess ourselves all the time. So yeah, I think that they're really important.
0: You were originally supposed to read Chapter 8, until, but then I moved it to next week. But you had a question, so why don't we talk about it here?
1: Uh, so with rubrics, um, they mention rubrics to, um, to assess understanding. And uh, like in our class, we have uh, rubrics too. And uh, I absolutely like rubrics. I feel like it's something that... Um, that could be used at all times. Obviously, I don't use them now <laughs> because um, mm. most of my students uh, cannot read yet, but we're working on it. Um, you know, with uh, rubrics, I feel like it's so important to have it alongside with them. And while student teaching, uh, my, co- my cooperating teachers absolutely praised on having a rubric for everything. And uh, if, even if it was in math, Um, even if it was in history or science, they always had a rubric, um, obviously depending on the type of assignment, but my question was, how do you feel about rubrics and do you use rubrics
2: other than the traditional analytic rubric? I was going to say like, obviously, like I have my own personal rubrics that I use to measure um, my students on, but it's not so much that they are aware of the rubric, um, or that they're reading it. but like in terms of our class, I think the rubrics are so helpful because it just gives a clear, you know, expectation. Um, you know, so I think in terms of the teacher and in terms of the student, rubrics are really important because it kind of like sets the groundwork um, and it's you know a concrete, um, almost concrete set of rules or. Um, things like that that you need to make sure you accomplish if you want to receive a certain grade. I also think in terms of the teacher, it's great because it's like your rationale um, to explain a student's grade um, or explain something. So I think that um, rubrics are really important in any classroom. They just might be used differently.
0: Yeah. And that's also a self-assessment tool for yourself, right? Teachers being people who also would benefit from self-assessment. And I think they also talked about different kinds of rubrics, where you have one kind where I don't know if they have a name for it, but one kind where you just have a list of things, and then another one where you break it down by level, like proficient, you know, whatever level wording you use, but um, breaking it down so that it's filled out a little bit more. And I think they definitely prefer the one that's filled out and more elaborate, but more in, more helpful for the student.
2: Yeah, I remember in my undergrad learning about how there's a, there's like a big difference between like a rubric and a checklist. Um, mm-hmm. Like what you're saying, like a rubric is much more like in depth, like with a rationale almost, which I think is really helpful because that's, that's you know, what I was saying about how it, for the teacher and for the student, it kind of like helps them to be on the same page. Like the expectations are clear. Um, and, you know, it's a way for the teacher to um, back up you know the reasoning for their grade because there's a rationale provided
1: yeah with um using um a checklist uh which is like what you said a type of assessment uh I feel like it it does uh allow you to see how they're doing well with uh well not just that how they're not how they're doing well but how they did on like a written assignment uh mm-hmm. and you know, I remember during my undergrad seeing that uh my cooperating teachers would use a checklist for uh for even for math making sure that if they had uh written out their problem their problem in uh in a detailed way if uh they went ahead and wrote out the steps and I feel like it's a really a checklist is a really great assessment or uh, type of assessment to to see if they're actually understanding what they're learning. For example, they had a paper that they had to write. Uh, mm. And with that paper that they wrote, they asked a question like, uh, does a paragraph state a topic sentence that states an opinion? And mm. then so they would have to check yes or no. And it could be written out in different ways too.
0: Did that also have a rubric or was that the rubric?
1: Uh, Well, that was a type of rubric for uh, literacy. Uh, One for math that I've seen is a statement saying that, did you check your work after finishing the problem? Um, Mm -hmm. And they would say yes or no.
0: Were there any other questions from the wiggins Matigue reading?
2: Just like proposed an idea, but they mentioned the three basic questions to ask when you're thinking like an assessor.
0: What page is that?
2: Um, It is on page 150. So basically... There are three questions that that says, what kind of evidence do we need to find, you know, to to make sure that we're reaching our goals and that students are understanding? Um, The second question is, what specific characteristics and the responses from the students um, or their performances should we examine um, Mm -hmm. to determine if things were achieved? And then the last one is, does the proposed evidence enable us to infer a student's knowledge, skill, or understanding? So I was just thinking, like, every week I have to submit my lesson plans. And like, there's, you know, lesson extensions in there. I provide all rationale. um, I put, you know, goals and I do put an assessment piece. Um, But I was saying, I wonder if, you know, administrators, if they had put more demand on maybe covering those three questions um, Mm. in, you know, in your assessment when you submit it to them, if, you know, that would help to lead teachers in the right direction to make sure that, you know, they're not just putting down an assessment, but they're really... um, digging deeper Mm. to make sure that their assessment is covering those three basic questions. So I was just thinking about how I would imagine in my school if the teachers were, um, you know, mandated to provide that rationale and to cover those three questions that, you know, our assessments really would be much more meaningful and much more appropriate to measuring to see if the goal was really reached.
0: Do you think they'll be receptive to that?
2: I think if they understood how important assessment was or Mm. if they Kind of were exposed to some of this information that we were exposed to um, in these readings that they might be because I think it. Mm. I mean, I think it's going to make our jobs easier because you know if our assessments are centered around making sure we're reaching those questions, then a lot of our job right there is you know completed. You know the de- you know there could be data included in it and everything like that. Um, and yeah. I just think it's a little bit more of a clear way to know if our students are reaching the goals or if they're not.
0: Yeah, it could even be like a just a template. You don't even have to fill it out formally, but things you can think through. You can start with the major assignments maybe and then have them think through it and then adjust it. Well, thank you both for spending time talking about these things. You two have very interesting kind of backgrounds to share, so I think that's really helpful. Thank you for for being here.
1: Thank you. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Bye. Bye.